Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Fletcher, the CIO at IBM, and we discuss how to progress your career, what IT modernization looks like in the government sector, and how to balance the long term effects of working remote. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. So when you were on the the late show when you did the internship with David Letterman, did you guys ever have any days where you had like complete technical disasters? I'm trying to think if there were any big technical disasters. Um, and I worked as an intern at both the Conan O'Brien show and the David Letterman show, and they were very different experiences because at the Letterman show, you're in the Ed Sullivan Theater. So everyone in that building is just there for the Letterman show. And um, that creates a certain kind of energy. And then at Conan, you're in 30 Rockefeller Center and it's like you're an employee of GE and there's shared resources between Dateline and Good Morning America and all these other shows. And you really felt more like you were working in a large corporation. But um, I don't think there were any big technical disasters, although there was a fire where the fire department came in and they had some kind of really elaborate like liquid nitrogen fueled air conditioning system because Dave liked to have the ambient temperature of the of the auditorium at like 39 degrees or something much lower than a regular air conditioner could get it because once you get hundreds of people in there that makes the temperature go up anyway but then just the feeling is that the comedy's fresher if it's cold and and so there was all this concern about a potential explosion but it didn't happen well, that's interesting. Why did you decide to do those types of internships? How did they come up? Yeah, well, uh, you know, entertainment's kind of more the family business. Uh, both my parents, my dad was a musician and my mom's an actress and uh, my grandfather was a director. And so, um, you know, there was a period of time where I thought I might, I might go into entertainment in some capacity. But I always had this strong kind of technology thread. And I remember getting, you know, I think the Commodore 64 was my first computer and then saving up and building my own x86 white box and then getting a Mac in 1984. And and even when I was at the Letterman show and I worked as a production assistant on some movies and things as well, I remember, you know, being really interested in the, um, the, the, the technology they had, the phone system. They had an early, uh, it was called, I think, Elvis, the Electronic Linear Video Information System. And it was this huge room with a tape robot that would spin around in a circle, like in a science fiction movie. And just being like so interested in that. And then when I was in college, um, because it was the people I was friends with and it was just fun to hang out, I got a job working at the help desk and then we called it the Advanced Technology Lab. But I just loved being around people that were, working on kind of, you know, IT type issues and, and, uh, and enjoyed it. And at some point I came to the conclusion, I should really stop fighting this and just accept it. This is what I love to do. And I remember, um, you know, I graduated in 2000 and so it was like right kind of at the crest of the dot-com boom. And I went to a small liberal arts college, which I loved, but placing people in technology companies was not their thing. I remember going to the Office of Career Services and they were like, what do you want to do when you graduate? And I said, I, I think I really want to work in tech. And they were like, oof, that's going to be tough. So I knew it was kind of going to be on me. And so in spring break of my graduating year, uh, I flew out to Silicon Valley and 
you know, it was kind of early days of things. And I, I went to a Kinko's and bought a, a San Jose Mercury News and started looking for job postings and trying to get a job lined up for July after I graduate. And um, I ended up getting a job offer at a company called bigvine.com, uh, like Big Vine. And, you know, at the time, it seemed like a good idea. It was a B2B model. And uh, the idea was if if I'm Hertz and you're Hilton and I've got unused cars and you've got unused rooms, we'll agree to make a swap. And hey, it had the right keywords around it. It was B2B and you know they had a big shiny office. So I graduate from school, I get in the car with my then girlfriend, now wife, and we're in my Volkswagen Golf and we get as far as Utah with all my belongings in the car. And I get this call that says, Hey, I'm really sorry to do this, but we have to rescind our offer. You know, the 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 bubble's kind of bursting, and believe us, it's it's better now than later that we do this. And I thought you know, it's easy for you to say I'm I'm in Utah, but we ended up deciding to just continue driving out to the West Coast and um, uh, did the same thing, applied to jobs, and you know, my 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 wife got a job and I got a job, and. Uh, uh, and that's really how I got kind of started in the tech field. Is that when you started working at IBM? No. So I was out on the West Coast and um, I was at a company that was a spinoff of Intel. They did um, uh, material science and semiconductor uh, analysis and things. That's not what I did. I was doing kind of very basic IT help desk for them. And uh, about a year into that job, I got a call from a friend of mine who I'd gone to college with who said, Hey, I was, I'm a systems administrator at this company that was called homewarehouse.com and we just got acquired by Walmart. And it turned out that Walmart had um, decided that the best way for them to have an e-commerce site was to acquire the te technology and the talent on the, on the West Coast. And they bought homewarehouse.com and the shopping cart and all the people. And he said, and so they're looking for a uh, Windows administrator. And I didn't really know anything about Walmart at the time. And so I called a friend of mine on the East Coast and said, hey, you know, a friend of mine called me about this potential opportunity at Walmart. Uh, what do you think? And he said, hey, regardless of, you know, Walmart's a fantastically run company and you will learn a ton. Uh, I would grab onto that job with both hands. And so I went and I interviewed and ultimately got hired. And I came into there as a um, systems administrator. Um, while I was there, I ended up getting uh, Microsoft MCSE certified and um, Cisco certified and became an um, engineering manager and was really enjoying working there. You know, I just, it was like being in an IT boot camp. And my friend was right. You know, Walmart is a technology company masquerading as a, as a, a retailer. And the basics of excellent change control and IT discipline and how you really run things at scale. Uh, getting an appreciation for those things. It was a great place to work. And I was very happy there, but uh, my father lives in New York or lived in New York and he started getting ill and I really needed to be back on the East Coast to help care for him. And so that's what led me to uh, uh, look for opportunities on the East Coast. And ultimately I came to IBM. Nice. And then you've worked your way up. You, you didn't just start as the, you know, the head of IBM technology. You worked your way all the way up. Tell me about that. I did. I I, um, I I started as an IT architect working on IBM.com, and I think probably you know they saw Walmart.com and figured IBM.com, and then I had 
been at IBM working in the dot-com division for a little bit of time. And then, you know, as you do when you've been somewhere for a few years, kind of had some uh, soul searching about what am I looking to get out of this job and had a conversation with my manager that I was considering um, maybe taking a role in public in the public sector working for the government. And in the end, I decided not to take that job. But mentally, I thought, what I'm going to do is I'm going to stay at IBM, but I'm going to really commit to my job with the same level of intensity as if I had taken that job. And I'm just going to be in it like 120% and see what happens. And that's really when when things started moving um, fairly quickly for me at IBM. And I, I ended up getting an opportunity to be the um, uh, chief of staff or the executive assistant, we call it, to the then CIO and uh, learned a ton. Uh, and then about a year later, she promoted me into a, a director role, mostly employee kind of productivity space, which was the area that I had asked to lead. And uh, and then the next CIO promoted me again, uh, and then again after that. And then when he left, uh, IBM, to my great honor and surprise, uh, offered me the role of being the uh, CIO for IBM. And at IBM, it's a um, it's a very centralized. Uh, global IT function. So, you know, we don't have kind of business unit CIOs or or geography CIOs. There's one IT department and and one CIO for the whole company. Now, when when you first started, like something stood out to me there that I want to talk. So, okay. when you first started to like try, like you said, you're going to work this job at with the energy that you had taken the other job. Yeah. That, did that create like a shift, like a ripple that went throughout your whole career? Was that a big moment of transition for you? Well, I think, um, you know, I've sort of come to reflect on that moment as it is really healthy every two or three years to just really recommit to either the job you have or go get the job that you want to have. And um, yeah, I mean, I I think it was a helpful lesson that, you know, we all kind of own our our destiny to some degree. And I, I think it was, it was an interesting experiment. And there was shared accountability on both sides, and 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 uh, IBM responded when I dialed it up. Yeah, you get you get like what you put into it, right? Yeah. So you mentioned that you were interested in the public sector. You talked about this is a public sector job. I saw you had some education, looks like some political science education, and I was curious, like, what got you interested in the government sector at all? Well, you know, I'm I'm. Uh, I'm a, I'm a citizen and I'm an American and I think it's noble public service. And I always really enjoy the opportunity to spend time with people who are passionate about what they do. And I think for the most part, the people that I've interact, interacted with in the, in the U.S. federal space are by and large, very smart, high integrity, hardworking people who could be making a lot more money in the private sector but choose to do this because they believe in their mission. And that's uh, attractive. I feel like I'm very mission-driven. And so we are, you wrote this article about government IT transformation. And I was just curious, like I, I'm stumbling around a little bit because I read the whole thing like six times. And I was like, what's the best questions to ask from this? And <laughs> the only experience I've had recently is when COVID happened, our state's uh, infrastructure crashed for the unemployment. And I happen to know some of the uh, technology leaders and political leaders at the state level. So I called them up and I'm like, guys, 
what is actually happening? Like scale the servers up. And they're, they're like, Joel, this is written on like 1980s stuff. Okay. And it's it, very, very difficult to scale. And we're just trying to, it's a huge engineering challenge. And we're just trying to figure this out. And I was like, oh, wow, you our systems today that are processing were written 15, 20 years ago. They're old systems just being maintained. Uh, and so that creates, that's completely fine as long as everything you know, stay status quo. But when we surge or double or triple traffic for an international emergency, they just go down. And so I was just, I was curious what your experience has been like through this, you know, COVID pandemic, because you have so much experience in the government sector. It looks like you work with different different governments around the world. Yeah. Well, and I, I think what you're highlighting is sort of the same conclusion that all IT organizations are coming to, which is these modernization efforts were important before, but they're really critical now. And to some degree, the main sort of impact of COVID is not so much that it's dramatically altered the strategy or the trajectory that we were on. It's that it's um, accelerated everything. So it's almost like our whole lives are on fast forward. And, and you know, you got to kind of take 10 years of work and get it done in 10 months or 10 weeks. And so for there is a whole separate discussion around, you know, IT modernization for 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 governments, which I think is incredibly important and a lot of great work being done there around hybrid cloud and 5G and network modernization and AI and otherwise. With respect to COVID-19, I think we've kind of experienced that in in three waves. And they were technology, cybersecurity, and culture. Uh, I remember being in... Um, at work in late February, watching video clips of what was happening in Wuhan and saying, you know, hmm, we're we're in the business of running mission critical workloads, really things that just cannot fail for critical infrastructure or high consequence mission sets. Um, and so we're always modeling out what do we do if there's an earthquake or a data center disappears into the earth or an ocean or in a fire or a geopolitical instability. But we don't typically scenario out what do we do if the whole planet has a problem? And um, we started to have some conversations around, you know, what what would we do? Are we prepared for a scenario where all 350,000 employees here would have to work remotely or almost all? And, um, and that drove a, a sense of urgency and a different set of actions around modernizing our remote access and our endpoint strategy and our... Um, you know, VPN. And there was a lot of kind of, you know, getting hands and feet into data centers and VPN appliances racked quickly and circuits spun up. And do we have enough remote access capabilities? Uh, and then once we kind of got past that hurdle of, let's say in our case, ramping, by the way, uh, prior to this, about only 22% or so of IBMers were working remotely. Mostly people were in the office. So once we got, you know, 3X our remote access capacity, very quickly after that, the conversation became, well, now we've extended our attack surface to everyone's homes. And so you got people doing school at home, playing with iPads, playing with video game systems. And so what do we need to do to um, secure our perimeter when that's now an even more porous kind of thing? And, and that drove some leveling up of our endpoint cyber capabilities. And then once we got comfortable that, um, you know, we've now got split tunnel VPN and we don't need to backhaul all of the traffic into IBM to be able to inspect it. And we have a good awareness of what people are up to and have pursued zero trust for things where, 
You don't even really need the VPN for a lot of activities because we're authenticating who you are, where you are, what device you're on, what the status of that device is, and what activity you're trying to do, and is that out of profile for someone in your job. Then we get into this kind of, what is the longer term consequence of working in this way for an enduring period of time? And how do we maintain our sense of purpose, our sense of togetherness as a community, our relationships with each other? You know, in the beginning, it all kind of works quite well just organically because we already know each other. It's like your relatives. You don't stop being close to your parents just because you don't live at home anymore. But as new people come into the organization, you know, what role can technology play to create these kind of more meaningful relationships with each other? And I sometimes talk about it as a relationship bank where, you know, if you and I are in the office together and I stop by and ask how things are going and maybe we go to lunch together, those are deposits in our relationship bank. When I'm asking you of things in a work capacity, those are withdrawals. And so if all we have are scheduled 30-minute meetings and I'm just making withdrawals all the time, we're in a relationship deficit. We don't really have a personal friendship. And so how can we kind of simulate those moments when we're when we're working in this different way is part of, I think, you know, what what we're all working through right now. And and um, you know, we've gone through this kind of incredible stress test of our IT systems and of our business continuity and and it's held up incredibly well. We've continued to be able to serve our clients and we continue to operate as a company successfully. Uh, and actually our employee engagement numbers are are are, um, are very positive. And, but it has required really putting our shoulder into, it's not going to go back to exactly the same way as it was before. This is a, a modified way of working and it requires a slightly different approach. Yeah, because you're a global company, right? We are a global company. Yep, we have a worldwide footprint, you know, uh, as I said, you know, hundreds of thousands of employees all over the world and thousands of offices. And now a large number of them working remotely as well. So when you needed all those like computers, did you just call up Bezos and be like, hey, I need a big shipment? <laughs> well, luckily, uh, IBM has a commercial procurement arm and um, established relationships with uh, a lot of providers and supply chain. And we were able to get everybody the equipment that, that we needed and help clients of IBM do the same. Now, while we were going through this, like us as a company, we were going through a security review, like getting into a larger company. And so COVID and everything slowed that down a lot. It was already a long process, but I was talking with um, Mike from Security Scorecard and they're, they're a security company. They do this thing where they assign like a security number, like a credit score. I don't know if you've seen this, but when I saw it, I thought it was like the future because it allowed you as a business or an organization to have this security rating and all your information saved so that when you get you know, new, new customers, they can pull all that existing information and questionnaires and everything like that. And one of the uh, community questions we got from, from our Elevate community is how you handle like being such a big company, you being at the top, like how do you think about the security of third-party vendors? Yeah, it's an excellent question. And that gets, um, you know, really to the heart of the issue is, you know, the, the flow of data and what's happening. And directionally, the trend line continues of advantage going to bad guys, not good guys. And we've all read in the news this week, some fairly significant uh, attacks that have been underway. And so this really be consumes a lot of my time. And you can imagine the kind of clients that IBM has and the kinds of data that we're stewards of uh, and the kind of missions that we're helping our clients execute 
we spend a lot of time worrying about our data, but even more worrying about client data. And so this really becomes an exercise in making sure that we understand our, our global networks and the systems that underlie those networks better than the adversaries that are trying to break into them. And, and that's a moving goalpost. It's a, it's a 24 by seven challenge. We only have to let our guard down once. It's, it's called an, an APT, you know, an, an advanced persistent threat for a reason. That two minutes that you turn off a firewall to debug something and let your guard down for even a minute, um, and that can be a problem. And so this is something that we, we are really focused on and, and uh, tremendously vigilant about. I think your point about scorecards is a good one because what you measure is what improves and sort of sets the priorities for the organization about how success is rewarded and measured. And so as we've embraced agile ways of working and more recently augmented by objectives and key results, we have a whole bunch of OKRs around security and compliance and our regulatory obligations and penetration testing and insider threat and uh, and all of that. And, and, and even just the more pedestrian low-hanging fruit, you know, you would not think in 2020 we would be talking about patch management and cyber hygiene, but probably the number one thing I could do to help keep IBM safe is take advantage of software improvements by way of updates and make sure that those are getting out there. It doesn't sound complicated, but at our scale with thousands of servers, it can be. One of our community questions was from Phil, and this is, I think it's a fantastic one because he wants to know, how do you have a, like, what is your system? How do you choose what you focus on? I wish I could say it's some sort of a a trick or a skill that I picked up somewhere. I, I think the honest answer to that is that I just love what I do. It's endlessly interesting to me. And so my hobby is my work. My work is my hobby. If I'm not during the work week for IBM, I'm doing very similar IBM type activities or IT activities at home and building out a lab and reading and learning new things. And so it's the whole, maybe it's the whole sort of 10,000 hours of, of mastery of something discussion. I think if you, if you love what you do, you'll likely be good at it because you'll, uh, and I'm not saying I'm good at it, but I think, you know, it's not forced. It's not a chore. It's, it's what I enjoy. And so getting into the details and knowing how it all works and discovering where, where other companies that I admire are headed and how they're solving problems and, 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 you know, making sure we're open to uh, always learning new things is, is what makes the job endlessly fun and challenging and, and rewarding. And I think if, if you could ever be on top of everything, it wouldn't be as rewarding a job. There, there is no way that I will ever be able to know everything in this field, but I can, but I'm always trying. It sounds like 10,000 hours plus kid in a candy shop because people ask me about the podcast, like, how do you do it? How do you do so many episodes? I was like, it's the best thing in the world is how I do it. I wake up every day and I get excited and pumped up for to get to talk to these amazing people about technology. And I love hearing, you know, if I wasn't doing this, if I was still developing, like I've been doing for the past 17 years, but if I was, I'd just be doing different projects in different industries from real estate to law because I, I like the variety and learning and solving new problems. I just, I'm a really like, on type of person yeah and then and, and and as a result of that you're you're great at what you do and it's always new it's always changing it's always evolving and i think it is very similar and and i think especially if you love it you're in an opportunity to be part of the group that is helping define what our future world looks like 
And that is a really exciting thing to be a part of. We're not passengers. We're we're all kind of to some degree in the driver's seat of the designers of these systems and these experiences and um, how governments will serve their citizens and how people will consume services and content and how we will operate as a society and get get healthcare and all these other kind of big issues. There is no area of our life that is not really heavily touched by technology today. Yeah. In your article, you mentioned this concept of like a common ID. So you'd be able to go into like, you know, renew your driver's license or your social security or all of these different government services using a common like login ID. Now, I don't have that in like my city, state, whatever, as far as I'm concerned or as far as I know. Have you seen other countries do this? Is this something that's happening? Yeah, there are examples of other countries doing this for um, various citizen services, elections, entitlements, benefits. And to some degree, we have that in our personal lives today. I think directionally, it is going to be where governments head. If you if you can have a secure digital identity, it's just a much more efficient way to deliver functions out to your population. Um, and, and I think there's a lot of benefit in terms of democratizing access to the government services. And then with, with I'm going to change directions here. Sure. So you mentioned earlier that, um, you know, there's not a bunch of different business units with different CIOs, things like that. And so I'm curious, like, what are your direct reports like? Like, are they, how does that work? Yeah. So um, the way that we've kind of carved up the um, the IT pie, if you will, and, and you know, I, I should say, in, in my case, the... Um, two-thirds of almost everything I do in the IT department is really for the benefit of other business units in IBM, and about one-third is sort of core IT because we've centralized all of the IT. So we have things like finance uh, finance systems, manufacturing, supply chain, logistics, uh, and all of the... We're kind of running all of those systems. But um, we've got the sales and marketing systems under one of my direct reports, the finance and supply chain systems under another one. Um, I do have a person obviously responsible for uh, assured identity and cybersecurity operations, another person responsible for network engineering, another person responsible for a lot of our SAP estate, kind of the the ERP and the quote to cash stack, as as well as a person responsible for uh, all of the employee endpoints, you know, your phone, your tablet, your laptop, and the productivity software that's on there. I have a, de- a developer team that builds mobile apps for internal use within the company, but also our, our corporate intranet. I have an infrastructure person who does uh, our hybrid cloud, our Red Hat OpenShift stack, our data center operations. And then one of the first changes that I made when I became CIO was uh, creating a new function reporting to me of um, a person responsible for user experience and design. And if you were to ask me sort of what's the... 30 second or what's the five second version of what's your approach to how you think about delivering IT to the company? It's to lead with the user experience and design and engineer from the user in instead of the IT department out. And so we've really baked that into our interpretation of agile. How we approach problem solving is very sort of design thinking led and data driven. And that our definition of an Agile squad includes a design component and designed to include things like editorial content, information architecture, yes, visual design, but um, user research and, and all of the things that sort of go into a experience, if you will. 
And so anything that we build, whether it's a, a mobile app or a, a web app or an email that goes out to a lot of people or a sign that we hang on an elevator, if a lot of people are going to see something, we make sure it goes through that team so that it comes out the other end looking like something from your consumer life that is intuitive and well-designed. Yes. Thank you. Okay. I'm excited. <laughs> I'm a big design geek. So uh, I, when things look good, it actually affects affects and impacts your mood. Like I can open up a website and feel like relaxing. I'm like, oh, this is beautiful, right? Yes, and it's interesting sort of what things look like is more than just the visual aesthetic. It's the um, the overall experience. And so I think that's been a um, an important component of this user experience team is the visuals are certainly an important component, but it's all the other kind of disciplines that come together to create an experience, including that the words make sense, you know, the, the um, and having some discipline around how we communicate with the rest of the company and that emails don't come from us that look like router command line output, but that, you know, make some, some sense. Why am I receiving this? And some, you know, earlier on, there were good conversations about, it doesn't take anything away from the team that did this complicated thing, but do people really need to know about this? Are they going to care about it? you know, and, and, and sometimes less is more. And do we really, you know, is, is there some action required or is this just us letting everybody know we did this complicated thing? And, and so getting that kind of muscle built around, let's have fewer communications and have them be really good when we need to send them. Oh, I love it. I love it. And, and when you do like large, like future projects or just normal size future projects, like investing in quantum computing or something of that nature. How does, do you get directly involved with that? Is there an area of the company that like handles that and pitches projects? How does that work? Well, there is a, um, an entire research uh, arm of IBM that, you know, is always out at the bleeding edge of, you know, what's going to be next, whether it's AI or quantum computing or, or blockchain or, or hybrid cloud technology or otherwise. And so, you know, I'm lucky in that regard because I, when we have some problem that there's no, <clears throat> excuse me, when we have an issue or a problem that we're trying to solve from an IT perspective and there doesn't appear to be any commercial uh, solution to that, I can go in and engage with IBM researchers and say, here's what we're trying to do. Can you help us figure out a way to solve that problem? And, and sometimes that ends up becoming a commercial product that IBM sells. And then sometimes it goes the other way, like, you know, hey, we've invented a quantum computer. Are there problems that a you know, traditional computer would take 10,000 years to solve that would be interesting to work on together? And, and I get the opportunity that way as well. And so that that's a, an ongoing dynamic of our IT department. And it happens all the time. You know, we want to do this in the Wi-Fi space or in the 5G space or in the AI ops uh, IT realm, or we want to do this experiment with, you know, uh, lattice cryptography or quantum proof cryptography and so on. And, and, and I'll, we'll work in partnership with IBM research on that. What are you, what are you really excited about today? That's geeky. Like, do you have a research project you can talk about that, that you're excited about or just a general area? Um, I think in terms of general areas, you know, AI is, is very top of mind for both the opportunities and the challenges that it will bring to uh, our world. You know, things like AI ops are really interesting for me in my IT role. Can, can we develop systems that have an awareness of what's going on in the environment 
and automatically take corrective action and have human decision makers in the mix, but but overtake a lot of the sort of grind of IT operations and and automate that stuff. That stuff's really kind of interesting for us. And, and a, actually an example of where we've really deployed that or, or kind of a straightforward IT example is we used to replace everybody's laptop every four years or three years, depending what kind of job you did. And there's a lot of people for whom getting an email that it's time for a new laptop is not a positive development in their life. It's always exciting for me because when I get a new laptop, it's it's like a birthday present. But um, that's not always the case for people in other job roles. And to them, the device they have, they feel is working fine. And this is just a disruption. And so um, moving from age-based replacement of devices to building out these AI predictors of failure and understanding, is it taking telemetry off those endpoints and knowing what the performance of that device is? And is it exhibiting any any early signs of imminent failure? And if it's not, and it's performing well, we'll just leave it be until we think there's going to be a problem or the person reaches out to us. And what that allows me to do is kind of come out and say, our policy is actually that you can get a new laptop or a new device whenever you want. Because statistically speaking, that's a small percentage of people, but it tends to be the people for whom there's the biggest benefit, like engineers and software developers and people who really kind of want the latest and greatest laptop. So and then and then in the cyber space, you know, AI and then eventually especially AI AI and quantum is going to create a whole new category of of cyber threat. And you know, if you can take some sort of a vulnerability and iterate on it thousands of times a second and use AI on that problem, the only thing that will combat AI is more AI. And so it's going to totally change the cyber landscape in in a very significant way. I think 5G will be really interesting for uh, what we're able to do at the edge in terms of edge computing and low latency and increased bandwidth and better security. And that'll open up a whole new category of, of things we can do that'll be really interesting. Hybrid cloud is more sort of here, not more, you know, more than some of the longer term quantum things. Uh, that's something we're really on this year. And it's been really helpful even in, in COVID where, where we've moved things from traditional data center environments to our platforms powered by Red Hat, managed in OpenShift. We get huge um, efficiency from that, being able to swing workloads from public, private, or hybrid cloud environments with no downtime, handle patching differently, automate a lot of things, get a lot of operational and cyber efficiencies. That's an interesting space for me. Um, I think um, selfishly, you know, personal interest is autonomous driving. I, I bought a car with autopilot for that reason. And I'm, I'm sort of of the opinion that within our lives, I, I bet it will be illegal to drive manually in certain places. You know, if you sort of think about having a conversation with somebody 20, 30, 40 years from now, where you go, you know, we used to get in a 5,000 pound steel box and drive 70 miles an hour down a road and the human body sort of engineered to go like five to 10 miles an hour. And on an annual basis, 50,000 of us would just die doing this. Yeah, that sounds like a crazy activity to be doing. And that something like 90 some odd percent of cars are not in use at any given time. It's very inefficient. So I think that's going to be a really interesting opportunity if you can just summon a transport pod to take you somewhere and and be able to be productive while that's happening. That's, that's kind of exciting, I think. We're there. I mean, 
it's the technology is right at the doorstep. In some countries, they're already doing it. I, I saw a map the other day of where there's autonomous like vehicle access in the United States. It was far larger than I thought. They have many cities. I think it was over like 15, 20 cities where there's like active autonomous testing going on. I think it's going to be hugely beneficial for society, for, um, for, for elderly people, you know, for people that are just learning how to drive, you know, the driving is kind of a, 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 a big issue for certain parts of your life, or if you live in certain locations and if you can, if you can go to the doctor without having to be able to drive yourself there and, and, and get access to services. And maybe you don't have to live in a city just because of other things. And I, I think it could be, um, a real game changer for society. Yeah, no, I'm a lot is changing. And I was curious to know about um, Red Hat, right? So I got to talk with Chris Wright over there and they seemed like they had a really great culture. And then you were talking a little bit about culture earlier. And I was just curious, were you part of that like merger or, or purchase? Well, um, I was a part of it in the sense that, you know, I'm the IT department of IBM and, and uh, but, but there are, you know, they're a separate company, they're part of IBM, but they have their own IT department and their own identity. And, but, you know, I, I, I know all of the people over there very well and the CIO over there and I talk regularly and exchange ideas and work together on things. And so I think we're getting the best of each other. There are things that IBM does really well at scale that we can provide to, to Red Hat that's useful. And then there are things that Red Hat does that uh, I'm already taking advantage of and getting a lot of benefit out of. So, but but yes, I mean, was certainly involved in in uh, uh, in the process. Yeah, I mean, they're they're a great company, and I really enjoyed getting to to meet Chris. And uh, so, what's the what's the culture like? How would you describe the culture on your team? Well, I think it's something that I've spent a, a lot of time deliberately working on, and and it's first and foremost, I'm looking for people who are kind, passionate about what they do for a living, and believe in our purpose as a company. And if we can surround ourselves with those kinds of teammates, we'll be successful in whatever problem of the day we happen to be working on. You know, that'll always be changing, but our culture is kind of the only unique thing that you have. And if you sort of think about over time, people steal your technology or they try to, it's just kind of what happens. But it's pretty difficult to steal somebody's technology. Uh, excuse me, it's pretty difficult to steal someone's culture, right? And so uh, we spend a lot of time thinking about IT as a, a driver of culture change. And, and this I idea that the state of IT or the quality of IT is a, is a daily reflection of what the company thinks and feels about its people. And so if we really believe that to be true, then how well we're doing our jobs is not trivial. It's actually really core to creating a high-performance culture and attracting the kinds of people that we want to work with. In, in, in our space, I think our culture is first and foremost, treating each other respectfully, where it's a safe place where people can give each other constructive, respectful feedback, and that we've worked hard to de-layer the organization, embrace agile ways of working, take hierarchy out of our way of working, and really be focused on sometimes not even knowing who reports to whom, but teams that have come together to solve a technical challenge. And, and I think we've made, made uh, great progress on that. And it's interesting when, when you can do that, if you have people that you can really trust in the role, 
then then you get speed because you don't have all this checking up and down the line all the time, right? The teams are empowered to make decisions quickly. And, you know, you don't have to be involved in all decisions necessarily because you can rely on the fact that you have hugely talented, smart people working on these problems. That's what I keep hearing from everybody. They said it, it all comes down to the people. It does all come down to the people. And, it, and it's the lazy person's way out of any problem. Hire smart people and then you can rely on them to solve it. You want to look good, hire smart people, and then take care of them, right? Yes. Well, exactly. Now, do you do any sort of mentoring or anything like that? I do mentoring. IBM has a very robust mentoring program where people can um, go and search for a mentor of uh, if they want one, and they'll pair people up. And, and then there are more informal mentoring relationships as well. And it goes both ways, right? You, get, you can be mentored or have mentor, uh, mentees. What are you learning from the people that you've been mentoring? I, I think it goes back to what I was saying before, which is, you know, if you figure out what you love to do, everything else just kind of falls into place. And so good things will happen if, if, if you know what you really enjoy doing. And if you make your manager aware of what your goals are, you'll be orders of magnitude more likely to achieve it than if you leave it to chance. And I think, you know, all of us will spend more time at the office or at work than, than, than we will doing other things in our lives. And so this um, shouldn't be transactional. It needs to have some sort of deeper meaning and you need to be feel fulfilled by what you do every day. And that is worth the time to um, be thoughtful about and, and take an active role in managing the, the career and the future that you want to have. That was beautifully put, my friend. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Have you ever gotten to meet like any of your technology heroes because of, you know, your position, the job, your love of technology? Like you ever get to run into Elon Musk? Uh, well, I think one of the um, exciting things about working at a place like IBM is that's a, a brand name that opens a lot of doors. And so I've had opportunities to spend time at companies that I've admired for a long time and was was hugely exciting to just to be there and to meet people. And so, you know, I've gotten to go to Apple and spend time at the Apple campus and, and, and meet Tim Cook and, and fulfill some childhood dreams that were um, pretty special. Oh, did they have their new campus built yet? Like the crazy spaceship looking one? Yes, I've been in the spaceship. <laughs> Whoa, that is so cool. Is it is extremely impressive. So uh, yeah, we're, we're about ready to wrap up. I want to be respectful of your, of your hard stop, but was there anything else that you wanted to get out there into the world or anything else on your mind? Um, no, I mean, I, I think um, this has been a challenging year in a number of ways, but, you know, shared difficult experiences, difficult experiences can bring people together. And I, I think uh, that's kind of been the silver lining of this year is that in a lot of ways, this, I think, has has brought teams even closer together and provided a lot of challenges for sure, but also some new opportunities to explore uh, different ways to handle things and, and, you know, have virtual happy hours and reach out to people that may be geographically far away and have more of a virtual global community. And, and so it hasn't been without its, its uh, positives as well. And so I think um, as we go forward, we'll, we'll try to retain the best of what we, we've learned this year and put some of the hardship in the past. Yeah, that's that's how you grow, though, right? These difficult times, they create strong people and you get strong people and you 
you know, more innovation, uh, better society. And whenever I get start getting down, like I'm in one of these moments of my life uh, that's very difficult, um, I, I said, okay, that's like a flag. That's like an indicator. It's, we need to start finding the positive and figure out what's on the other side of this difficulty because it doesn't just get difficult and stay difficult forever. It's always this, you know, like spectrum of, of this, this up and down flow. And so it's important to shift, you know, or flip the flow, I guess. Yeah. I'd be curious to know what is the most creative thing that you've heard um, as a sort of virtual fun thing that people have done? You know, I'm running out of things to eat and drink, the things that I can do with my team. Uh, Have you heard anything really creative? Yeah. Well, so my teleprompter broke before this. So I'm in this like new environment. (laughs) And what actually saved the day is the gingerbread house that we're having a gingerbread house building contest. So I have a, a box, a kit, a gingerbread house building kit under an iPad that's on a stand because that happened to be the perfect height to come up below the teleprompter. Uh, but yeah, so we decided to build, we all we bought kits for all of our team. They all got the same kit and we're holding a gingerbread house building contest. That is an excellent idea. I like it. Although I think you should lean into it and next year it's the gingerbread teleprompter holder contest. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I like the gingerbread house building kit. I yeah. may have to, I may have to steal that one. Please do. There was another, we actually, st- it, that was like a steal from another company uh, that did something with like a popcorn ball decoration thing. I don't know what the popcorn ball is, but somebody said that. And then they said, what else could we do? That's not a popcorn ball. We said, let's do a gingerbread contest. So uh, I'll send you some pictures of the, uh, of, of how it comes out between the team and who wins. Okay. We did do a, um, I, with my direct reports, I did a home beer brewing experience, Ooh. which was kind of fun, uh, but complicated and didn't end well. For yeah. How do you do the taste testing? That's two weeks later. So you guys ship each other like a bunch of beer? <laughs> yeah. You got to send the hops and the, all the okay. stuff and then you, you, you make it and then you wait for it to ferment. And then you, unless people don't drink alcohol, but then they still can do the fun of making, if they, they can just drink it right away and then there's no alcohol in it. Was that, is that your favorite one or is that the most creative one that you guys have done? You know, I think ultimately um, they've all been good. We've had, you know, virtual breakfasts together and happy hours and be, you know, bring your own beverage. What has really been nice is just coming together more frequently and, and spending time together, even if we can't physically be together. Yeah, that human connection is just incredibly important. And I think it's actually kept, uh, I, I, I know it's kept me sane during the quarantine and the pandemic because I, I'm, I'm talking to all of, all of my friends and colleagues all day at work. And so that sense of isolation is, is much less than, than if I didn't have that. Yeah. And we get to still, when we interact, we get to like complete projects and that gives us that nice like hit of accomplishment. Like for me, even if I talk to people, if I don't like complete something or like work on something during the day, uh, then I just go to bed feeling like I just didn't do the day right. So yeah, I like, I like getting this thing. Yeah. Sense of purpose. Definitely. Well, thank you so much, my friend. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. It was, uh, it was very enjoyable and, and, uh, thanks for making it easy on me. And, uh, Good luck. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you would like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. 
Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.